As you probably already know, Reds Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Browning passed away this week at the age of 62. Tom Browning, of course, was a favorite player of many across the uh, many Reds fans across the country, including yours truly. Big fan of Tom Browning growing up, and uh, it was obvious why. Not he was a good pitcher. First of all, obviously good enough to be uh, enshrined in the Reds Hall of Fame. But also the fact that he just was sort of a fun-loving guy and uh, involved in some of the, the, the fun moments in Reds history for fans of a certain vintage, including me. Browning was a ninth-round pick of the Reds back in 1982 and made it to the big leagues uh, just a couple years later um, in 1984. But his big impact on the league, would, of course, was – in his rookie season of 1985. And this is when I, I really set up to take notice because, you know, 1985, I was still a kid and pitcher wins were the most important thing in the world to me. And Tom Browning as a rookie he goes 20 and nine, wins 20 games as a rookie. So uh, we're, I'm pretty early in my Reds fandom at that point. I'm thinking, oh man, we have a superstar here. And he didn't become a superstar, but he was a solid, reliable pitcher in Cincinnati for uh, basically the next decade. Uh, the following year, 86, he uh, led the league in game started for the first time uh, in his career. He would ultimately lead the league four times in game started. And that was one of the terms that you heard most about Tom Brady, workmanlike, because uh, he made his starts every four days back then. Um, but also, if you didn't get to watch Tom Brady pitch, you just don't understand how this guy uh, worked quickly. He got the ball and, and moved. No wasted motion, no wasted effort, uh, none of this, uh, you know, bouncing around behind the mound and taking little walks. He got the ball back from the catcher. He threw a pitch. And fun to watch, fun to watch. Of course, most Reds fans are going to remember him for that uh, 1988 perfect game that he threw where you know, the big long rain delay – the game didn't even start. It was in that Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. It didn't even start until after 10 p.m. Eastern time. And um, just a, a really, really quick game to uh, become the 12th pitcher in big league history to, uh, to throw a perfect game. Now, probably I – I, I remember when that happened. I didn't watch it. I wasn't there unlike the other millions of people that claim to have been there. But my biggest memory of Tom Browning is not the perfect game. It's not the time uh, that uh, he <laughs> walked across the, uh, the street, Waveland Avenue, I guess, in Chicago and, and went up in, uh, in, on the uh, rooftop in full uniform in the middle of a Reds-Cubs game, which obviously that, that photograph is, is legendary. Uh, my biggest memory was game two of the 1990 World Series where Browning was uh, scheduled to be the game three starter. So he, he had there was no idea that he might pitch. Uh, the game, as you uh, may know, went into extra innings. And at the end, they, the Reds were sort of starting to get concerned. Reds manager Lou Pinella was sort of starting to get concerned about uh, his pitching. And there was a thought that he may have to bring in Browning in relief in that game. Well, Browning, of course, again, like I said, he, he thought, I'm starting in a couple days out in Oakland. I'm scheduled starter for game three. I'm not pitching tonight. So he gets a phone call that his wife went into labor. And he's like, well, I'm out of here. I'm going. I'm not pitching tonight. So I, my wife's in labor. I can't miss the, the, the birth of my child. And, uh, and takes off. 
Well, at some point, uh, Pinella, uh, when he starts thinking he might need him, goes looking around since his pitching coach, uh, Stan Williams, around to find Browning, just tell him, just be ready just in case, and he's nowhere to be found. So they send the uh, the word up to Marty Brenneman in the broadcast booth. Hey, uh, make a call out for, uh, for Tom Browning. We may need him. And so Marty uh, just goes on the radio, and you can find that clip uh, somewhere if you want to listen to it, of, of Marty Brenneman saying, Tom, come back to the ballpark. You may have to pitch. Brian, of course, never heard it. He was there for the birth of his son. It, uh, uh, it just went down into Red's lore. But um, that's one of the things that I uh, always come to mind when I think about Tom Browning. But Browning was a, a guy that was a, a, around a lot of Red's uh, events and Red's Fest in, in recent years and uh, did some coaching with the Reds and just always going to be one of my uh, all-time favorite players and 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 rest in peace uh, tom browning now the episode that we have here for you is an interview that uh, tom browning uh, actually did with the riverfront back when we were called red leg nation radio um this was back on july 16 2009 so this is uh this is a long time ago and, and browning agreed to come on uh, on the show and and uh our buddy bill lack actually did the interview with with him this was the episode number 32 Episode number 32 of uh, The Riverfront, quote-unquote. And it's a pretty wide-ranging conversation. And I think still an interesting conversation. I went back and listened to it today with uh, with Tom, uh, everything that, about his career and and some things about, uh, you know, his, his coaching at that time in the Reds minor league organization. So I think that you will uh, get a kick out of listening to it. Uh, you know, uh, raise a glass uh, toast up to Tom Browning tonight. And uh, let's uh, let's remember him fondly in the uh, in the coming days, weeks, and months. Godspeed, Tom Browning. Here's Bill Lack with Tom Browning in 2009. Welcome to Red Leg Nation Radio, and today we're really excited to be joined by Reds Hall of Famer and current pitching coach of the Reds Gulf Coast League team, Tom Browning. Tom, thanks very much for your time today, and welcome to Red Leg Nation Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, let's talk about you know when you were a kid, Tom. You were born in Casper, Wyoming. And and, and yeah, that, born in Casper, Wyoming. Is that the? Did you grow up in that area? Yeah, I grew up in Casper. I lived there the first fourteen years of my life. Uh, unbelievable, believe it or not, I became a Reds fan uh, as a kid growing up. I was born in nineteen sixty, so. Uh, the uh, late 60s, early 70s, when the Reds started to come together as a pretty good team. Of course, the big red machine showing up in the uh, early 70s and then certainly capping it off with the 75, 76 seasons. But uh, became a Reds fan out there because, uh, you know, they were always on in, uh, in September and obviously playing the World Series and some playoff games. And I used to bowl every Saturday. And back then, we only got Saturday game of the week. And it just seemed like the Reds were on every weekend. So I became a Reds fan in that regard. Yep, we had Tony Kubek and, and Kirk Gowdy every week, didn't we? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Kirk Gowdy being a homeboy, being from Mike, he's from Cody, but uh, he was from Wyoming. So, uh, yeah, but I enjoyed watching the Reds play. I loved the way they played. You know, no facial hair, all black shoes, this red stirrups, uh, you know, and just the way they played. Yeah. Now, I re- did you did you move to, like, New York or something as you when you were in high school? Yeah, when my dad, my actually my stepfather helped uh, – New York State Power Authority to develop a uh, or design a power line from Utica, New York to uh, Montreal, Canada, from my whole high school uh, 
career, and I lived in Utica, New York for two years, and then I moved up uh, right up near the Canaan border for the last two years of my high school. Uh, so I, I, uh, it was a culture shock going from Wyoming to New York, but uh, certainly wasn't one that I couldn't handle. But that's where I, uh, that's where I spent my high school career, and then I ended up going to school in, in Syracuse at Lemoyne College. Uh, at that time, it was a Division II, uh, pretty good baseball school though, but. Uh, Probably where I learned more about baseball than anywhere else in, in, in as far as getting my career off the ground. When you were in high school, did you play any other sports other than baseball? Oh, yeah. I played basketball. I ran cross country. I, I played soccer in my freshman and sophomore year in high school. Uh, then I transferred up to Franklin Academy up in Malone, New York. And uh, they had football, and I, and I was really, you know, I loved basketball. And I was afraid to play football because I didn't want to get hurt and miss basketball season. So I ran cross country. Uh, just kind of keep my legs in shape. I, you know, I didn't really put a whole lot of effort into it. I did a lot of running, uh, but I didn't take cross country as serious as I did basketball and baseball. And, and ba- basketball is my number one love. I, I love basketball probably more than I did baseball, but uh, just didn't. Uh, we didn't have three point lines back then. Of course, I like getting in the in the and amongst the trees there and playing around the rim. And uh, you know, I was good at banking shots and stuff like that. But uh, I knew baseball was going to be where I needed to go. Did you did you play four years of college ball at Lemoyne before you were drafted? Actually, I, I played three years at Lemoyne College. We actually went to the World Series two out of the three years I was there. I went my freshman year and didn't pitch. I didn't even get off the bench, uh, but I pitched in my junior year. And then uh, they wanted me to stay there for the summer and go to summer school. And I had already uh, played summer ball in Virginia in a in a pretty good college league, and I wanted to go back there and play again. Uh, so I ended up transferring uh, from Lemoyne to a place called Tennessee Wesleyan in Athens, Tennessee, just south of Knoxville, about an hour, uh, about an hour and a half above Chattanooga, somewhere about halfway between those two. Uh, and I played, I sat out my in the fall, and I actually played the, the spring of my senior year, 1982, and that's where I got drafted by the Reds. So you, you were a ninth-round pick by the Reds. Did you know the Reds were going to take you, or did you know you were going to be picked? Uh, well, I, I met a guy named Chet Montgomery. I went to the, we went to the playoffs uh, my senior year, uh, and he actually came up to me and invited me to the pre-draft tryout camp up there in Cincinnati. Uh, so I went to that. I uh, got to pitch a little bit in the bullpen, and I got pitching a little bit in the game. Uh, he got the phone numbers of where I was going to be. I actually went down to Florida. Uh, and I gave him the numbers where I was going to be. And then draft day, they, actually, I think it was the second day, they called me and told me they'd select me in the ninth round. And, you know, I was pretty pretty pumped up by then because I was just, you know, I wanted to play professional baseball, but I, it was even a dream come true to be drafted by the Cincinnati Reds. So your first stop was Billings, which must have been kind of like going home. Yeah, well, actually, my parents, uh, after my dad helped design that power line, they actually moved back out west. They actually moved to Billings, Montana. So uh, when I got drafted, they gave me the option of either going to Tampa or going to Billings, Montana. I said, well, heck, my parents live in Billings. Why don't I just go to Billings? Uh, and I went out there, and uh, that's where it all started. And, you know, I didn't have a, a great year. I, I mean, I pitched okay, but I, didn't, I was like 4-8. and eight, uh, But at least I got my feet wet in professional baseball and lived at home. I uh, got invited down to the Instruction League that fall. And uh, our pitching coach, or at the time, Harry Dorsch, uh, taught me the screwball, which I used as my changeup, and that really kind of set my career on a, on a quicker path. What, what, what was your pitching repertoire during your career, Tom? What all pitches did you throw? I mean, I mean everybody I knows threw you threw a lot of fastballs. Same. Yeah? Yeah, I threw a lot of fastballs, and I had a, a screwball that I used for my changeup. Right, everybody, yeah. I didn't have a very good breaking ball. 
didn't have very good breaking ball. Of course, I didn't throw a lot of breaking balls. Uh, but I had a really good fastball, you know, at least a fastball I could, I could throw anywhere in the strike zone that I wanted to. And I had a good changeup. Uh, but I threw a lot of strikes and I worked quick. Yep. And players like playing behind me. The umpires like umpire behind me because I didn't waste much time. So uh, maybe I got some advantages being, being a quick worker. But, you know, I was predominantly a fastball changeup guy. Now, you hear the guys today, they talk about throwing the four seam and the two seam. Did you throw both or did you throw one consistent, you know, straight fastball or, or, or what? I was a four-seam guy. I threw a four-seam fastball uh, because I knew where it was going. I had command of it, and because I was a, you know, I wasn't a big long strider, so I got on top of the ball pretty easily. And I actually, even at 88 miles an hour, I was able to get a little bit of hop on the ball. Uh, and, and I remember Larry Rothschild asked me about throwing a two-seam fastball, and I said, I don't know where that, I don't know where it's going, and I don't really want to throw anything where I don't know where it's going. I want to be able to have command of whatever I'm throwing and. You know, and I was probably a little hard-headed probably later in my career, but, I mean, the, the four-seam fastball and, and the change-up were, was my repertoire, and I relied on those two things, and I really didn't want to, to mess those things up. Yeah. In 83, you, play, you played in Tampa and Waterbury, and, and in that year, you threw over 200 innings. Isn't that a, isn't that a ton of pit, uh, innings for a minor leaguer? Uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I was, of course, I was 23 then. Yeah. Uh, I remember in Tampa, because I, I got off to a great start in Tampa. I was like 7-0 with a .79 ERA. I struck out 100 batters in like 70-something innings. I got called up to double-A. Uh, I ended up finishing 4-10 in double-A, but I struck out another 100 batters. That was the only year I ever struck out uh, 200 batters in, in, a, in, a, in a season or a year. Uh, but, you know, I was very fortunate that I, ha- I, was, I had a very durable body, probably a very durable arm, but I also threw without a lot of stress on any particular part of my arm or body. Uh, and, you know, again, I was very fortunate. I just never really got hurt. I didn't get hurt till, towards, until towards the end of my major league career, really, and uh, was very blessed that I was able to, you know, maintain uh, good health throughout that. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at your statistics while you're, you're talking. I'm amazed at how good your memory is on your numbers. And we're, we're gonna, I'm going to test your memory in a little while. Um, do okay. you think? Do, do you think that now that they would let a twenty-three-year-old minor leaguer throw two hundred innings? Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I'll, I'll put it to you this way: I think there's so much more money involved now. Of course, I don't know what minor leaguers make. I mean, we were—I was making seven hundred fifty dollars a month when I was in A ball. I got a raise. So I was making seven hundred a month in A ball. I got called up to Double A. They gave me a fifty-dollar raise. I was making seven hundred fifty dollars a month. So. I don't know what they're making now, but I'm sure it's a lot more than that, or at least it's probably twice that. But yeah. you know, and I, I just think it all depends on who what, who the pitchers are. I mean, there's some guys that are not that are that are max effort guys, and I mean they put everything they can into every pitch. Those guys are, are hard to keep healthy. Uh, the guys that are nice and relaxed and go out there and look like they're in a rocking chair, just kind of playing catch for the mound, are the guys that you can probably rely on giving you a lot of innings and, and probably staying healthy. Mm-hmm. In '84, you pitched in Wichita, and, and then you got a September call-up. So you, you went all the way through the minors in a little over two years, right? Yeah, I was very fortunate. Like I said, once I learned that changeup or that screwball, it kind of springboarded me up to the organization. You know, of course, I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time, and and, and had some success. And uh, you know, like I said, I was just very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time in an organization that was, uh, you know, was struggling with pitching, especially in the minor league level. Tell us what it felt like the first day you put on a, a, a major league uniform and got to walk out onto that field. Even even though you weren't playing that day, you just got to walk out there. What was the feeling like? 
my my first uh, in the big leagues or yeah, in the big, are you, are in the big leagues point? when you put in the, on the, the red like, uniform. Oh, when I got called up, I got called up at the the Reds were in Los Angeles, and I remember walking into the well, I I, I couldn't. I tried to get into Dodger Stadium. They didn't believe I was a player, uh, so I had to talk to the security guard and let me in because uh, I didn't know where I was going. So I ended up walking in the clubhouse, and the first guy to meet me was Pete Rose. And he said, hey, Tom, welcome to Cincinnati. You know, and I said, thanks. I didn't know whether they call him Mr. Rose or Pete or Skipper or whatever. And I said, oh, thanks, Pete. And, and he goes, oh, by the way, and this is on a Friday. I want to say it was September 7th. And it was on a Friday, and, I, and he said, oh, by the way, you're pitching on Sunday. Mario Soto's wife went into labor. He had to go home and have a baby. So I said, oh, cool. So, yeah, it was pretty neat. And then when you walk out to uh, you know, Dodger Stadium, a team that I actually grew up hating, uh, walk out to the Dodger Stadium and on that Friday night, man, it was just like a, a slice of heaven to me because I, after seeing it on TV and then actually being in uniform in that dugout, seeing uh, you know, the Los Angeles Dodgers in the other dugout, it was pretty cool. So you, you have your first game on that Sunday on the ninth against the Dodgers in Dodger Stadium. Tell us about about that day, what that day meant to you, and, and, and what you remember about that first major league game. Uh, well, I remember the first batter I faced was Dave Anderson. I struck him out with a three-two screwball. Uh, I know I took a shutout into the ninth inning, and uh, Greg Brock broke up my shutout, who happened to be a University of Wyoming graduate or played at University of Wyoming, so uh, I guess there was a little connection there. But I just remember going out there and just once the game started, I guess I got over to all the butterflies and I just kind of got into the game. And, you know, I got a base hit, I think, off of all Hershiser, my first at bat. Uh, you know, it was just kind of a dream come true. When, when you when you're go out there for the first time, does everything seem like it's happening at about a million miles an hour? I mean, is it very important to slow the game down? Yeah, it does. It, it, I mean, it did. That's for sure. But like I said, I, you know, I was pretty, pretty, pretty confident pitcher. So, you know, once the game kind of got underway, I wasn't really uh, uh, caught off guard. I wasn't, you know, awestruck. I was awestruck before it. But uh, you know, once the game kind of got into the, we got into the game. I was pretty much under control. But again, I worked at hyperspeed anyway, so it, it really wasn't something I could handle. But you know, you have to be able to handle your, your jitters and stuff like that because you get nervous. Absolutely, I can understand that. Okay, let's give you a memory test here. Who was your catcher that day? Uh, Brad Golden. Yeah, absolutely right. How, okay, this one's probably not fair, but how much of the lineup that day do you remember? The guys behind you. Uh, first base. Uh, did Pete Rose play first base? No, nope, not that day. No. Nick Asaski? Alan Nicely. Alan Nicely? Oh, that's right. He was with me in AAA. Ronnie Oster second. Yep. Shortstop. Shortstop, uh, either it was a David Concepcion or Tom Foley. It was Tom Foley that day. Okay. Third base was Nick Asaski. Yep. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Eric Davis was out there somewhere, I'm guessing, in center field. Eric was in right that day. Eric was in right, so Dave Parker didn't play. Okay. Eric was in right, uh, center field. Eddie Milner. Oh, Eddie Milner and Gary Reedus in left? Nope, Cesar Cedeno in left. Oh, Cesar, that's right, Cesar Cedeno, that's right, that's okay. Oh, wow, I forgot all those guys, yeah. <laughs> hey, Tom, tell us what it was like playing for Pete Rose. It was awesome. You know, this is a guy you grew up watching, he played 100% all the time. You know, uh, he used to sprint to first base on walks. 
you know, all Pete cared about was that when you were out there that you played 100%. You know, I, I think he had trouble with guys that didn't play it like he did or didn't have to play like he did, uh, but he was fun to play for. He was fun to play with uh, because all he cared about was winning baseball. Should Pete be in the Hall of Fame? Sure, I do. I believe he should be. You know, obviously uh, the grand old men of baseball have got some other ideas. Uh, you know, I think the recent things that have taken place have probably uh, probably helped his cause a little bit. But, you know, Pete, Pete uh, you know, I think they want to see a different side of Pete where he's, you know, probably a little bit remorseful on things that took place. You know, I know he'd be a great ambassador. You know, I know he'd love to get back into coaching, but I just can't see that happening. But I certainly hope that uh, before his day's done that he can go out there and he can at least uh, go into Cooperstown as a member. Yeah, I've always felt that the problem was that they didn't separate the problems that Pete had as he was a manager. With his from his playing career, because playing career is an right. absolute no-brainer, you know. Um, oh, there's nobody better. Yeah, I agree, and, and I'm a Cincinnati, you know, Cincinnati native myself, so I grew up watching Pete Rose. You know, right. I, I was one of those kids that wore 14 yeah. on his back. Um, oh, absolutely. In '85, uh, you had a pretty good rookie year. Were the first rookie to win 20 games since 1954, and you finished the season with 11 straight wins. Uh, finished uh, yeah. second in the Rookie of the Year voting. You remember who finished in front of you? Oh, sure. He got run over by the tarp in the playoffs. <laughs> and the guy that finished uh, behind you? He stole 100 you. bases. Yep. He, still, he stole 100 bases and then got run over by the tarp in the playoffs. Yep. And, uh, yes. and, and a future teammate finished behind you in the voting, Mariano Duncan. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mario and, actually hit a inside the park home run off me once. I don't know if it was 85 or 86. So you had a pretty good uh, rookie year, and you and you proceeded then to win uh, double digits for seven consecutive seasons, and that's a pretty daggone good career. In um, in, yeah. 80, in eighty-eight, you had a, a pretty good game in September. You know, I read a little bit about this uh, against the Dodgers. Yeah. How long? How long was the rain delay yeah. before you came out that night, Tom? Two and a half hours. We started the game at ten o'clock. Uh, so started at seven thirty. Uh, I actually was getting undressed at nine thirty. Uh, the ground crew came in and said, hey, we, we got a window, we're going at 10 o'clock. Uh, so I just got dressed and sat out there and uh, went out there and warmed up. You know, nothing special, nothing, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. It just happened as the game went on. It just got a little bit more exciting. And then obviously uh, finished in the ninth inning with the striking out uh, Tracy Woodson. Uh, you know, certainly made, put me on the map in Cincinnati, I can say that. Did, did did you feel like you were more sharp than you you know than any other time coming out of the bullpen? Did you feel like you had better stuff or anything like that? No, no, nothing really different. You know, I just again it was against the Dodgers. If there was one team I enjoyed beating more than any other team in baseball, it was the Dodgers. Because like I said, I grew up a Red fan. I hated the Dodgers. And I loved beating the Dodgers, and uh, you know it's just one of those games. We were actually still mathematically in the playoffs, although we were kind of the outside. We were like five or six games back. Uh, but anytime I got a pitch against the Dodgers, you know, I didn't need any extra motivation because so I love beating them. So, but it was just one of the nights where any mistakes that I made, they either fouled off or didn't swing, and then I, you know, the guys made the plays behind me. Although there wasn't anything spectacular, but they certainly made all the plays. They didn't get you a whole lot of runs that night, though. <laughs> no, I didn't know I needed one. Yeah, you only need one. <laughs> I, you're, I, you're... I tell these kids down here. Yeah, I, I tell these kids down here. I said, you know, very rarely will you ever pitch a game. Uh, completely in the windup, I say, although I did. But, uh, you know, it was just one of them nights where everything worked out, you know. If you, if you had one, do you have one memory from that night that stands out, or is it just kind of the whole thing, a big, you know, like kaleidoscope to you? 
Uh, well, I remember Mickey Hatcher batting, and I jammed it. He used to, he used to black bat, and back then, Louisville Slugger had silver paint on it. And I remember I jammed it so bad when I got the ball back. This was like in the fourth or fifth inning. I don't remember what inning it was. But when I got the ball back after they threw him out at first base and they threw the ball around, it had Louisville Slugger in reverse on the ball. You know, and I was so tickled that I jammed it so bad that I, that I got the label <laughs> you on got the imprint ball. of the label. And I, I threw it into Pete Rose so I could show him how bad I, I jammed him. And then after the game, the, kid, the kids came to me and said, hey, we got some balls, used balls from the game. Uh, do you want any extra balls? I said, yeah, give me about five or six of them. I said, but there's one in particular that I want, and that's the one I asked for, and I got it back. And that's uh, actually that's the last one I got. I gave that one to my dad, and he still has it to this day down in Wyoming. So. Oh, that's good. So in 89, you had a good year. I mean, you only were 15 and 12, but you had a good ERA. You had a career high in, in, in complete games. But with the stuff going on with Pete, it had to have been a tough year to be in the clubhouse and for the team on the field. How hard was it to keep the guys focused that year? Well, the one thing I can say about Pete is he never allowed it to really filter into the clubhouse. He kind of handled that all on his own. And although it was still tough because, you know, we talked, some, we talked amongst ourselves about the stuff was going on. Uh, I remember vividly sitting there because we had an off day and Pete was in New York and he had the press conference and uh, – you know, where he was banned from baseball, and that, that had a one-year ban and stuff like that. And, you know, it, it was tough, but it, you could really see it wearing on him. It really didn't bother us too much, you know, uh, but you could just see it wearing on him. And, and then eventually it just kind of, it probably, uh, it took a little bit of wind out of our sail. Of course, the Giants came on pretty pretty much like gangbusters anyway, and we just couldn't stay, keep pace with them. So then 1990 rolls around, which is a pretty magical year around here. Tell us, tell us your memories of that season and the playoffs and the World Series. Uh, that was just, just an awesome. That's probably my favorite uh, memory of my career was that 1990 season, uh, just because of what it, what it took for us to win. Obviously, we, we started the season late because of the strike. Uh, we started the season on the road for the first time ever. And my, the only time ever in my career, because we started in, uh, in Houston, uh, but we got up to a great start, one nine in a row, uh, and then we just kind of got on a tear. And everybody, you know, one thing I can say is that everybody on that team had something to do with helping us win a ball game throughout the throughout the season. It was just a magical year where just you know we got the accumulation of the nasty boys with Pibble and Charlton and Myers. Uh, so anytime we had a lead going to the seventh inning, that game was over with those guys in the bullpen. You know, and Lou was great. I mean, he took that team and. You know, he kind of molded us to what we what we ended up becoming. You know, he just he was very intense. Uh, he didn't he didn't like mediocrity, and if he didn't think you were giving your effort, he didn't mind telling you as well. Because I got I was uh, on the backside of that a few times. But I mean, he just had a way of wearing his heart on his sleeve and and got everything he could out of the players. And and we had just a good group of guys who pretty much grew up together and and kind of came together at the right time. And and Lou was the final piece of that puzzle that, that, that helped us uh, accomplish that year. You were just talking about, you know, the, the, the way Pete was and the way Lou was. It sounds like there were a lot of similarities between them as, as managers. Is that is that the case? Yeah, very, very similar, but Lou was a hell of a lot more fiery. I mean, Lou, if he didn't like what he saw, whether it would be the umpire or the players or whatever, he didn't mind voicing his opinion, whereas Pete was a little bit more reserved in that regard. Uh, but, you know, the, the cool thing is is, is – that team was kind of put together by Pete Rose, and, and Lou got the final, uh, the final parts, you know, or, or actually became the final part, kind of like, 
the big red machine when Dave Bristol put that team together and Sparky came in and they started winning with Sparky. But, uh, you know, Pete, Pete had a lot to do with all those players uh, becoming major leaguers. And, and Lou, like I said, was probably the final ingredient to get the most out of the players that he possibly could. It's funny you say that about Dave Bristol. That was my exactly my next question. You know, that he, I, I've always felt that he didn't get enough credit for the success of the big red machine and that Pete was kind well, of the players the are, yeah, the players aren't afraid to say that, that Bristol was the guy that kind of put that team together. You know, and Sparky came in and did the right things, but uh, and also they had a pretty – I mean, you think about it, he got five Hall of Famers on that team or, or should have five Hall of Famers on that team along with his Hall of Fame manager. But, uh, you know, again, we you know we just had the magical year where everything we did was the right thing to do and we got off to a great start and, and, and just kind of snowballed from there. So. Yeah. In 92 and 93, looking at this, your record or your, your statistics here, your innings were down. Were you hurt off and on in those years? Yeah, I signed that long-term deal, and I got hurt every year of that deal. Uh, first thing I did, I tore my knee up in Houston in a collision home plate. Uh, then I broke my finger the next year uh, in 93, and then 94, I broke my arm, and that was uh, pretty much the uh, you know beginning of the end for me. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I just... Just some freak things happen, and you know, if you don't stay healthy, you know, it's it's hard to get back. And I was just, uh, you know, I just spent most of the time trying to struggle to get back. I mean, that collision home plate in Houston uh, kind of started, and then the next year I got a, a, a ground ball off my fingertip, broke my finger, and missed half that year. And it just, uh, you know, just one of those things that happens. You know, you're just never ready for your your career to be over, but it, uh, in the blink of an eye, it was. That's for sure. In the minors, you were you were a high strikeout guy, but not as much in the big leagues. Was was this a, just a, you know the, the the higher level of competition, or, or did your philosophy change on the mound, or a little bit of both? Well, I, I was very uh, in the minor leagues. I was able to get that fastball by a lot of guys, you know, because I threw about ninety ninety two in the minor leagues. But then I got the big leagues, and those boys can hit that fastball whatever speed you throw it when you when you don't have command. So you know, I had to start. I had to back down a little bit so I could stay more on the outside part of the plate and the inside part of the plate and kind of stay away from the middle part of the plate. Although I did throw a lot of balls on the middle plate because I gave up a lot of home runs. But, uh, <laughs> you know, strikeouts strikeouts for me just made it meant more pitches. And, I, you know, I, I, like to, uh, I like to be as pitch efficient as I could. So if I could throw three pitches per hitter and get to the next guy, uh, you know, that was my philosophy. Just get him, get him out as quickly as possible and at least go through 27 outs as quickly as I could. Tom, which means more to you, the perfect game or winning the World Series? Winning the World Series by far. You know, perfect game is obviously my greatest uh, accomplishment, individually speaking. Uh, but I, I cherish the World Series ring and the, and the World Championship uh, so much more than because it took a, it was a team effort. It's a team game, and you know, and, and actually, my perfect game couldn't have taken place without my teammates anyway. So, yeah. but I, I will say that World Series and that whole year we had was more magical and more meaningful than than any other uh, year in my career. Can you pick out a really good hitter that you used to have real good success with, success against? Uh, Andres Dallaraga, Howard Johnson. I think Howard Johnson was like one for 40 off me or maybe two for 40. (laughs) Uh, Andres Dallaraga, I I don't know what it was. I just saw him up and away and he kept swinging and missing. Uh, But I think Howard Johnson was, I had more success with him. So I'd throw him one fastball, then I'd throw him change it the rest of the time, and he kept looking for that next fastball. Who used to wear you out? <laughs> a guy named Tim Tuffle. Tough, Tim Tuffle? Tim Tuffle wore me out. Oh, he, he came one up there blindfold and hit a rocket off me somewhere. <laughs> uh, and he probably did. You know, it just, uh, for whatever reason, I asked him after we both retired, 
I asked him, how come you hit me so well? He said, well, I went up to look at the fastball. I said, well, that's all I ever threw you. He said, well, that's why I hit you so good. So, uh, But Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla probably hit more home runs off than anybody. But they hit uh, a lot off I everybody. Bobby hit about, <laughs> yeah, he hit about 10 off me. I think Barry got me about six times. Strawberry got me four or five times. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I threw a lot of pitch over the plate, so not all of them were quality pitches. In 2006, you were inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame. What did that mean to you? And tell us a little bit about that night. Uh, that was uh, a culmination of things, you know. To be uh, to represent the Cincinnati Reds and to be one of the Hall of Famers uh, with some of the likes of, you know, the Big Red Machine guys, and Mario Soto, Don Gullett, you know, guys that were my mentors or guys I grew up watching and idolizing and to, to be mentioned or be in the same place. Uh, with those guys uh, is, is, is obviously an honor. Uh, and it's, like I said, I, I, I have to probably think that the perfect game probably got me in a lot of doors. Uh, but it, it certainly was uh, something that I'll cherish, you know, being able to say that I was a, I'm a Cincinnati Reds Hall of Famer. That means a whole lot to me. And now you've moved into a coaching career with the Reds, and, and you were in Billings last year. And, and we all know about the long bus rides in, 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 the, in the Pioneer League. As, you yeah. know, it, it, it's a different thing for a 20-year-old kid to take those long bus rides. How is it for a grown-up to take those bus rides? Well, hey, back then it was just a bus. Now it's a bus with bathrooms and TVs, and we get to watch movies and stuff. And It was a lot easier last year because of that. Uh, this year, uh, down here in Sarasota, we, we, have all, we, we don't have any night games, and every game is played in the day. You know, and the longest bus ride we have is like an hour and 20 minutes down to Fort Myers, so... Yeah. It's not bad, but I mean, the, the long bus rides last year, the shortest bus ride we had was like four hours, but again, because you had, we could watch movies and videos and stuff like that, it, it certainly made the time go by, but, uh, you know, I didn't mind it. I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed being with them kids. Uh, I had a lot of fun being with them kids, you know, and, and I just tried to uh, promote the game as best I could and, and try to glorify how great it was to be in the big leagues and what a, what a great place to play and, you know, give them all and try to... You know, whatever I could do to help them kids live their dream is really what I, what I, how I approached it. And I know your season down there in the Gulf Coast League is really just kind of getting started, but the guys that I've talked to that have played that league over the last few years, they tell me that if you can put up numbers in that league, you really earn them, you know, with the all-day games and the noon starts and the heat. I've heard it called baseball it, boot camp. I mean, how tough is that league? It, it's hot <laughs> every day. I mean, but, it, you know, it, it's still baseball. Uh, we play in the backfield, so there's not a whole lot of fanfare or a whole lot of fans, for that matter. Uh, but it's still baseball, you know, and you try to get these kids to approach it that way. I mean, we're fortunate that we get, like, four night games this year, so they get a taste of what it's like playing under the lights. Because uh, a lot of these kids haven't played under the lights, and a lot of them won't play under the lights until possibly next year or, or years following. But it's, it's still the same game, and you got to try to make it fun for them. It is. It's almost like extended spring training after extended spring training. I mean, they're doing the same thing from uh, April 1st until uh, September 1st. So you try to, you know, mix it up, and but you still try to get them to go out there and play the game the right way, teach them how to play the game the right way, teach them how to pitch the right way. Uh, it's the, and, and really, you're, you're building everything for, to, from fundamentals on up. Uh, you don't have, you know, you have to remind yourself where you're at because a lot of these kids are real young and raw. Uh, so you got to understand they're going to fail a lot. So we have to be able to, pick them up when they do fail and, and kind of pat them on the fanny or, or, you know, pat them on the back when they do great things too. But, uh, you know, we try to make it as durable for them because it's a grind and it can wear on you. But if you, 
you know, if you approach it to, you know, the right way, it, you know, it's pretty tolerable. Is what 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 pitching philosophy do you try to pass on to these kids, Tom? Throw strikes. Babe Ruth is dead. <laughs> uh, you know, just be aggressive. Be, you know, be able to trust the stuff that you got. If you throw 88 miles an hour, you throw 92 miles an hour. You still got to throw it over the plate. Be aggressive. Uh, understand that you're going to have days when you're not going to pitch well. And, you know, you have to get over those days because it's going to happen to everybody. If you agree to be a pitcher, then you agree to get your, your, your butt kicked every now and then. It's being able to handle those bad days and go out there and get ready for the next time out that makes a difference. So you just try to be, uh, you know, you try to be a consoler, I guess, when they have the tough days. And then you try to be, you know, you try, try not to let them get too uh, full of themselves as well when they're doing well. But you just try to keep them on an even keel. You know, my, my big philosophy is to stay under control at all times when you're out there. Don't allow bad things to happen uh, to affect you, and don't allow good things that happen to affect you either. Just try to stand even kill, worry about getting the hitter out at that time, and then work on the next guy. How much of being an effective pitcher is mental, and how much of it is physical? Uh, well, so I use yogis. Ninety percent of the game is half mental. Uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 you know, again, it's just you have to be able to understand that this game was invented for kids. You know, so you got to go out there and play with heart. you got to go out there because you enjoy playing the game. But you also have to understand that, you know, you got to go out there and, and give it an effort. Because that other team wants to beat you just as bad as you want to beat them. So you go out there and give it your best effort. And if you do it often enough and consistent enough, then, then everything else will take care of itself. You know, but go out there with the same approach. Go out there with the intention of doing your very best and play for your teammates. And don't worry about your individual stuff. Just go out there and do what's best you, best you can do for the, for the team that you're playing with. When I was down there a couple weeks ago. I, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I certainly answered it in that <laughs> I, I, my, my, I guess my, my only follow-up to that would be these mental aspects of pitching. Is, is repetition the way you teach them, just telling them the same things every day? Yeah, just being consistent, you know, because you're going to go out there and have on days when you don't have your best stuff. And those are the, those are the fun days when, you, when you're able to figure it out and, and, and win games when you don't have your best stuff. You know, but, but going out there and just trying to do the best you can and, and understand that you're going to make mistakes no matter what level, you know, just, just hopefully the mistakes don't cost you a whole lot, but understand that if you make a bad pitch, then you just got to try to go out there and make a better pitch the next time. You know, things like that are going to happen. And you're going to make a good pitch and you're going to have a base hits, and you're going make to make a bad pitch and, and get out. So just going out there and, you know, as a pitcher, you know, your job is to go out there and try to give your team a chance to win. If you do that often enough, then you'll get enough wins out of that. But more importantly, is your job is to go out there and give your team a chance to win. Let me ask you about a couple players on your team, not necessarily pitchers, but guys that are on the squad that you're coaching that have gotten some okay. some, some press, you know, not necessarily press, but some coverage in the blogs. Tell us a little bit about Billy Hamilton, your shortstop. Billy Hamilton, boy, he's a young little speedster right out of high school from Mississippi, uh, can flat out run, but he's very raw, very talented. Uh, but very raw uh, is, is uh, obviously came to place where he was the highlight on his team. Uh, but he's learning quickly here. You know, uh, he actually uh, got got a little sideline because he jammed his thumb slide, uh, sliding into second base. Uh, but he's a fun guy to watch, and uh, it'll be fun to watch him uh, develop as a player. But a, but a flashy guy with, a, with with some some ability. It's just a just real young and raw. Yeah, the, the day I was there, he played shortstop, and he, he looks like he covers a lot of ground out there. Um, but boy, he is a thin kid. We need to we need to buy him a couple of sandwiches. It looks like. 
Oh, yeah. If we get a strong wind, we can't play it because the wind will take him away. <laughs> is, is part of developing these kids, teaching them how to, to grow and, and getting them to weight train and that kind of thing, is that part of what you guys are, are working with them on? Yeah. Too? Yeah, I mean, that, that's one thing that's different than, than in my days. If we got spend more time with weight training and, and working in the weight room, and, and obviously nutrition helps as well. Uh, but, you know, again, they're 18 years old. Their metabolism, I wish I had the metabolism. I wouldn't have to work out as much as I do. Uh, but, but all those things will come. I mean, they'll, they'll just start putting weight on just because they're getting older. Uh, and they'll, they'll learn that, the, you know, what they put in their body will make a difference. So, you know, and that, that's all part of it. You know, our job is to just try to keep them on uh, level-headed and go about the business of, of being able to be as good a baseball player as they can. Yeah, I mean, you know, talk about you maturing physically, and just to get off the subject here for a quick second, Devin Mazzarocco is, is physically matured. So I watched him in Dayton last year, and this year he looked like a whole different guy when I saw him down in Sarasota a couple of weeks ago. He's just physically well, become a thing, much, yeah. much bigger man, you know, and he's still better. Oh, yeah, well, see, now, nowadays – of course, he signed with a bunch for a bunch of money, so he could probably hire a personal trainer. Uh, but that's what these guys do now. It's a, it's a year-round job for them now. I mean, it used to be we took the winter off, and especially when we're in the minor leagues, we had to get jobs to make money. And now they, you know, these guys, and I'm sure a lot of them still do. Uh, I know some of them teach. I mean, oh, Scott uh, or uh, Matt Clinker, uh, who, who worked up a champions with me this winter. A lot of these guys do something along the lines of, of coaching and uh, maybe instructing. Uh, but these guys, it's a year-round job now, and they have programs that the trainers and the strength coaches set up for them so they can stay in shape through the winter. So when they come to spring training, they're ready to go. And, and, you, and you see the differences. I mean, Devin is one of the more stands out more than a lot of guys who came in uh, bigger and stronger and, and it just matured. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear you put in a little plug for our Matt Clinker. He's one of our spotlight guys. He's one of our favorites. Um, oh yeah, good man, good yeah, man. Yeah, he's a good guy. He really is. The other guys I wanted to ask you about is is, is the Rodriguez, the Orman Rodriguez, and, and Juan Duran. And f- fair or unfair for their oh. age, these kids are getting a lot of eyeballs on them because of the money that was paid to them. Tell us what you see and what the scouts saw in these guys. Well, Yorman, center fielder, has got a lot of tools, uh, a lot of ability. Very, very young. But it has a great approach. I mean, loves to play the game, hustles all the time or most of the time. Uh, when he doesn't, he gets yelled at. So, uh, <laughs> but he, you can just see, you know, he, he's a guy that's got a chance to be a really, really good player. And he's only 16 or 17 years old. Uh, so he's got a real big upside. You know, hopefully we can just kind of get him the fundamental part down while he's here, and then just watch him uh, go through this organization. Uh, Juan Durand, very similar. He, he grew up. He was six five last year. He's now six seven. Un, unlimited power, but very, very raw. He's almost like a baby Huey. Uh, he's still, you know, get, trying to get his coordination. Uh, and, he, and he looks a little gangly out there. Uh, but ho- hopefully, and I can see why he was thought well of, because he's so big and strong, or at least big, and, and, and will hopefully get strong and get a better idea of, you know, how to handle being so big. But uh, he hit some balls off me in batting practice and disappeared, so... Uh, but, but it's going to be fun to watch these guys develop. I, I, with with as young as these guys are, they're and they're really young. Do you anticipate? And I know you you, you know this is like throwing darts at a dartboard. Would they? Would you <laughs> anticipate that they'll be playing a ball next year? or Do you think they'll spend a couple of years in rookie ball? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, Norman has developed a lot faster than I anticipated. You know, I mean, I'm sure he can handle going to Billings right now. And uh, again, it, it all depends on how they handle the summer. 
uh, and how they, you know, probably instructional league, and you know, it's, I would say uh, Yorm is probably a little bit more advanced than Juan Duran right now. Uh, but I, I, I can see those two guys. You know, it, it's hard to project just because sure. they're so young. But but Yorman certainly looks to me like he's uh, a little bit further along in his progress. Uh, but I, I think Juan Duran is going to be a got a chance to be a really good player too. Okay, tell us about any of the young guys on your pitching staff that have jumped out at you already. Uh, well, we got a guy named Pedro Villarreal. He was drafted last year. Had Tommy John surgery. He's just about uh, a year removed from that surgery now. He has uh, pitched very well down here. Uh, really kind of got an idea of what he's doing out there. Very aggressive with his fastball. Uh, in fact, I don't see him. I expect he'll be in Billings here very shortly. Uh, we had another kid uh, that was drafted this year, Blair Carson. Uh, pretty good, pretty quick arm. I know it throws about upper 80s, maybe hit 90 every now and then. But another guy who has an idea of what he's doing. Uh, don't expect him to be here very long. Uh, we got a, we got a couple new kids, and I haven't seen, they haven't been in the game yet. One is uh, Daniel Tuttle. Uh, we dropped North Carolina. I think he was a fifth rounder. Looks like he's got a really really live arm, uh, I, and he will probably get his uh, feet wet next week after this next off day. Uh, and I expect to see some pretty electric stuff from him. Uh, but he, again, he's 18 years old, but he's got a really good arm. He's got a you know he's got a good two seam fastball. It has a lot of run to it. I'm looking forward to seeing him. And then we got another kid named Clark, but I haven't seen He just reported today. I haven't really got to see him throw yet. So, I mean, one thing about this team we got, we're very, very young. Our average age is about 18 years old. So we got a lot of young kids, uh, but they're, they, they've been playing very good, very consistent down here, and have a lot of fun. So it's been a lot of fun being around these young guys. There's, there's another guy I wanted to ask you about. He pitched two years ago, and I think he must have had arm surgery last year, and he's come back, and he's the kid from Taiwan, and I'm not even going to try and say his name because I know I'd kill it. Zukai Chu? Yes. Zukai Chu, yeah. He, he's, uh, he, he's, he's been, it's been a battle for him to get on the field. He, he's finally got on here. To, he's pitched, uh, started two games for us, actually went five innings uh, his last start for the first time that he's ever went five innings in two years. Uh, he's just starting to get his arm strength back. Uh, he's probably not more than 84 miles an hour right now, uh, but got good mechanics. It's just a matter of him uh, – you know, getting getting healthy and staying healthy. Uh, you know, we got some good arms down here. We got like 16 or 17 pitchers. So our problem is trying to get these guys all enough innings to where they can be effective. Yeah. And and the Reds organization, it's funny because the Reds organization had long been known as having trouble developing pitchers. In fact, your name is often used as the last pitcher the Red, young pitcher the Reds developed was Tom Browning. And now the organization yeah, seems I'm not even young. I'm not even young anymore. <laughs> Neither of me either. But now the organization seems to be like pitching rich. And, and did something change? Was was a lot of it bad luck? Do you think? You know, have, have we got better scouts? Are we doing better things with our young guys in the minor leagues, or is it a, 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 all of these things? Or, or what? What's your thoughts on that? It, it's probably a combination of a few things. You know, it's probably very cyclical. Uh, we had some pitchers that just you know, you know, and it, it, it's a crapshoot on some guys. You know, some guys will be, will be look like they're good arms, but they just can't stay healthy, or something happens, and you know, and they get sidetracked in their career, or you know, because our throwing program and stuff like that that we got now, it's been pretty good, you know. But again, you you, you just never know uh, if you get the right guys. You know, my, my my philosophy is just to kind of 
back them off a little bit of their maximum effort so they can be under control, but at least they take care of their arms. You know, I'm getting, I think they're a lot better off now. We're certainly staying healthier, uh, although, you know, again, there's guys that just throw a ball a certain way at one time or another, and, and something happens. And, you know, but as of, you know, the guys down here, I mean, are very fortunate. They, they've been pretty healthy. You know, I know we've had some injuries at the upper levels uh, here or there, you know, but that happens with every organization. You know, but I think, you know, we're, we're concentrating now. We're starting to get more, more quality pitchers in here. You know, it's just hopefully we can keep them healthy and hopefully one day they can uh, get up there and help the Cincinnati Reds. Are you, in, are you on solid pitch counts at your level? Yeah, we, we monitor that pretty much, you know, especially at this level, at this age, you know, because we're so young. You know, but again, there's, there's certain guys that you got to monitor more than the other. But uh, we don't really overload these guys too much. Very rarely we do we let them go, you know, more than, than their pitch counts. And most of the kids don't get up over 85 pitches anyway as far as the starters go. And the, and, the, and the short guys, the relievers and stuff, we, you know, we'll give them two innings or, uh, you know, somewhere between 30 and 40 pitches in, in a couple, two or three innings. But, we, you know, we kind of monitor that. And, again, when you've got as many pitches as we do on, on this team, you've got to try and uh, do whatever you can to give everybody an opportunity. Well, before I let you go, Tom, I want to bounce some names off you and you just tell us, you know, give us a memory of them or, or, or a quick point, okay? Okay. Uh, how about David? Give us David Concepcion. Greatest candidate anybody ever saw. Davey, and, uh, you know, played 19 years with the Reds, uh, wanted to come back for his 20th year, and Davey could play any position he wanted to. He'd play first, second, short, or third. Uh, a, a, just a true professional, uh, one of my dear friends, and by far the greatest hands of anybody I've ever seen. Hall of Famer? Absolutely. Okay. Unfortunately, he was on a team, he played on a team of Hall of Famers. Yeah. Mario I, I would Soto. take him over Ozzy Smith. Yeah. Mario Soto, Bobby taught me more about pitching than any pitcher I've played with. Fastball changeup guy, uh, the heart of a lion, uh, played on some very, very bad teams. Are, isn't Mario a big part of, of, of setting? Hasn't his, his coming in and helping with the coaching been a big part of the Reds? Oh, he's great. He promised me he's going to spend more time down here with my kids, which is great because he's awesome with these uh, Latin players, uh, and he's great. And, you know, he, he, he had the best fastball changeup uh, combination of anybody I've ever seen. So, and he's been great with the kids, and they love him, and, and I like being around him myself. And he's made a big influence on the organization with with teaching the changeup, hasn't he? From what I've heard. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, just because he, he, you know, he has a way of getting across to those guys. Because I have terrible Spanish. In fact, I hardly have any Spanish. Uh, but he has just a way of relating to these kids, you know, and being very positive, you know, and they love being having him around here. And, and again, I. You know, I still pick his brain about stuff, and he's he, and he sees things that I don't see, and uh, you know, it, it's kind of neat just bouncing things off him as well. Okay, Dave Parker, uh, the funniest man I ever played with. Uh, this man put ice on his knees before and after every game for 150 games a year, and went out there and played on acid turf. I know it was tearing him up. Uh, a true Hall of Famer, uh, just had a, the ability to. He used the skinniest bat I've ever seen, but he could flat out hit and uh, had a good arm. Uh, and hoping one day that he gets a chance to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, Greg Rhodes, who, who you know used to run the Reds Hall of Fame, told us that he thinks that Parker might have missed his calling; that he should have been a stand-up comedian. Oh, he's funny. I mean, it just uh, quick, just quick-witted. 
used to love him get on everybody because he didn't mind getting on anybody. He just uh, he kept us in stitches. Ronnie Oster. True gamer. Uh, would battle to the end for you. I would take him on any team I had, turn the double play quicker than anybody I ever played with, and, and a big guy for a second baseman, uh, and would do anything he could to help you win a ball game. I loved him. Loved the guy. Jose Rijo. Uh, the probably as dominant pitchers there could as I ever saw. Uh, unfortunately, he just couldn't stay healthy. Uh, but I know in 1990, uh, without Jose Rio, we probably had no chance of winning that World Series. Barry Larkin. He was by far the best pitcher in baseball. Yeah. Barry Larkin, another uh, David Concepcion. Uh, probably uh, uh, changed the way the shortstops were played. Uh, became the first uh, five-tool shortstop player. Because uh, he could do anything, steal a base, hit a home run, hit a double, uh, great glove, uh, another Hall of Famer. Think he'll be a first ballot guy? I don't know. I don't know. Because I know him and Davey had very similar numbers. Uh, but uh, probably because in the year that he played, uh, he got a good chance. It all depends who he goes in with. You know, I didn't I hate to say that, but, you know, yeah. if he's the marquee guy, then, yeah, he'll probably be in there. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think he's a Hall of Famer. The MVP will help him. Yes. Okay, and then the last guy I'm going to ask you about is a guy that I loved watching back in the dark days of the 80s. Brad the Animal Leslie. Bradley. Awesome guy. Uh, I played with him, right, teammate in AAA in 1984. Uh, a funny guy. Loved to compete. Uh, was as intimidating as anybody. Uh, but had a good time. I mean, I remember we used to take batting practice in AAA, and he'd leave and go to the grocery store and go shopping. Uh, and, made, and made a career in Japan. You know, I speak fluent Japanese. I see him every fantasy camp. I love being around him. Uh, we have a lot of fun together. Uh, one of my dear friends. And that's all I got. Well, Tom, thanks very much for the time you've given us today, and good luck with your young players down there in Sarasota, and hopefully we'll be watching them, some of them next year in Dayton. And in a few years, we'll see him. Oh, in great, yeah. in, in a few years, we'll be seeing him in Great American. I hope we can catch I, up. I maybe, hope so as well. Yeah, I hope maybe we can catch up later in the season. And thanks, and good luck again. All right, holler me anytime.